As the centerpiece of Cultural DC's 20th anniversary season, the Barbershop Project was a multidisciplinary arts activation inspired by the performance of styling, art of hair, and shop culture. The project centered around Mighty Mighty, an immersive art installation and fully functional, fantastical barbershop in Cultural DC's mobile art gallery produced by Devin Shimayama. In this episode of Cultural DC's podcast, we sit down with Devin to discuss the meaning of his latest work and the intersections of LGBTQ identity and safe spaces. Devin Shimayama is a visual artist working primarily in self-portraiture and narratives inspired from classical mythology and allegory. The work of Devin Shimayama showcases the relationship between celebration and silence in queer culture and sexuality. Shimayama's compositions are often inspired by Caribbean folklore, science fiction, and the masters of Caravaggio and Goya, though adding a more contemporary expression and sensuality. With the usage of various materials, splatter paint, stencils, glitter, rhinestones, and sequins, Shimayama creates works that celebrate the black body as both magic and mystery. In his recent barbershop paintings, Shimayama transforms the hyper-masculine social space into queer fantasy where feminine glamour and fashion take over, and tender depictions of boys don floral capes and glittering crusted hair. Shimayama was born in 1989 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and graduated from Penn State University in 2011 with a BFA in drawing and painting before obtaining his MFA at Yale University School of Art in 2014. He is represented by Kavi Gupta Gallery in Chicago and DeBuck Gallery in New York. He is currently based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hi, thank you all for coming. <laughs> yeah, so this entire body of work um, surrounding the Black Barbershop um, and thinking about, um, you know, really way before this coming to life as this thing where you could actually go and get a haircut, I made all these paintings that debuted in 2017 at a solo exhibition in New York called Sweet at DeBuck Gallery. Um, a lot of those paintings I felt like were sort of in response to, um, at the time, Carrie James Marshall's retrospective was up, and I remember, I think Holland Cotter had written this really wonderful piece about um, Carrie James Marshall's work um, and its sort of resonance even today, and and how um, you know people can look at his work and think of that as something that was very, um, you know, th this is what it means to be black in America today. And and I remember the uh, uh, one of the large paintings that was featured there was. Um, one of his barbershop paintings. I think he has this one large one. It's called The Style, and I'll show it in the slideshow. But um, here's some of the earlier. I don't know how to do this. There we go. So some of the yeah. So some of the earlier works were um, these portraits in barbershop settings in black barbershops. Uh, initially, I had this idea where I would go into barbershops and actually start to engage and have this dialogue and discourse with barbers, um, thinking a lot about my own personal experiences in barbershops and not necessarily feeling particularly welcome as a queer body in those spaces. Um, being a person who was raised by predominantly women in my household, living with my mother, my grandmother, her sister, uh, always going to my great-grandmother's house, that kind of energy was um, radically different than entering into a barbershop, which was this kind of space for um, you know black men to come together. It's a place for male fraternal bonding, and yet it somehow, um, I 
it took me a while to be able to point to it and name it exactly why it wasn't welcoming. And I think it's a, it's a number of things. It's nothing that made me feel necessarily unsafe in terms of like physically threatened by violence in any way, but um, it just felt as though the entire space was uh, cultivating an environment that was for a specific type of masculinity to be present. And I didn't felt, feel like that matched up with what I was used to or who I am. And so, um, you know, my uncle eventually at a certain time, I think I was about five or so, just started cutting my hair for me. So I actually stopped going into barbershops um, because I never liked being in those spaces. And so I um, made these portraits and you never actually see the barber in them um, because I do know that it's a complex issue uh, and I never want to vilify anybody in particular or point the finger of blame. I think it's more so I wanted to make these works as uh, from my point of view what this is like and it's sort of like this internalization um, where whenever going into those spaces um, and I had this conversation with some friends of mine um, who identify similarly as black and queer when going to the barber shop we feel the need to closet ourselves again um, to enter that space and navigate it successfully to uh, you know get a haircut from somebody it's such an intimate up close experience and um, it requires a lot of trust and care and, uh, and comfort between the two parties and so um, you know I might be totally silent or close my eyes and just like zone out until it's over and so um, this is the painting that I was referencing earlier uh, just to give some context this painting is called the style which is a that title is a reference to a Dutch paint, painting movement um, I guess the most famous painter of that would be Mondrian. So you can kind of tell from the color palette in here, um, the black with the uh, rectangles of red and blue. And, um, and so, you know, I felt like this was uh, a painting where people were talking about black culture today, and this painting was made in 1993. And so I felt like, you know, that this was an amazing and revolutionary painting that helped, um, you know, a lot of people understand black culture, but that was just sort of like the, the tip of the iceberg in a way. And so um, I would, there's another painting of his that he has of a salon that he made in 2012. Um, and I think it's called Salon of Beauty, Salon of Culture. I don't know how to make this thing work. I'm trying. <laughs> um, and the next painting, oh, there it is. Uh, you know, this was an updated version. It's in a beauty salon. Predominantly uh, women are present. You can. Um, you can see there's also still some art historical references with that kind of warped, uh, I think that's Sleeping Beauty on the ground, which is a reference to um, you know, this kind of trick in painting and art history, which everybody that goes to art school will learn about. But um, you, know, you can see that from a certain angle um, properly. But what was interesting about this was that it sort of updated with pop cultural references into the space. You can see there's a Chris Ophelia poster in the background. There's um, Lauren Hill's album, uh, I think right above that door frame there, or maybe that's a mirror, and you can see Carrie James Marshall as the sort of photographer in the mirror and the flash coming out of the camera. Um, and even still, I felt like it was uh, indicative of this kind of divide, and it was only really showing the celebratory moments in those spaces of people who do feel welcome in there. And so I really um, was excited at the prospect of uh, giving my own experience from an intersectional perspective that was a little bit different. And, um, and this is also another work that inspired me and in especially thinking about the potential of having this come to life. And this is uh, a piece from Pepon Osorio's um, installation at slash pop-up space um, that he did in 1994. 
uh, and it's called No Crying in the Barbershop, but in Spanish, but I can't say it, so I don't know how to speak Spanish. <laughs> um, but, but he's using a ton of different materials. There was a lot of video um, and footage, and it was sort of a critique of, um, uh, of Latinx masculinity, which was very similar in this type of space as well, and this is a little bit more context. You can see there's a bunch of portraits of um, significant Latinx men um, lining the walls. There's a lot of these really crazy embellished chairs. And so this is all this happening in the 90s, like the early 90s. And then somehow this conversation sort of just never came back in in such full force again. And so I was really intrigued when it returned in a retrospective of Kerry James Marshall. We were looking at it as if that was something that was happening right now. And I felt like we were in a different place. And so that's sort of what helped to fuel a lot of what went into the new work that's here. Um, and these are just some more paintings. That a lot I of, do you want to speak about your self-portraits? There are a lot of self-portraits in your work and very much yeah. inward looking. Yeah, actually, I think I have one in here. That's my hand. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, self-portraiture was something, that was the starting point of this entire body of work. Um, and in general, a lot of the work that I've made uh, is rooted in self-portraiture and sometimes I'm it's more evidently me, and I want that to be a little bit more clear. Uh, and the reason why I started there was because I was, it was really a point of self-reflection, and I didn't know if this was something where everybody would feel similarly that has a shared identity with myself. And um, having the exhibition open in New York, it was almost like a call out to people who understand what I'm talking about. And I, I had so many people at the opening come up to me and after the talk that I had there and say, you know, I had the same experience, and women came up. Uh, queer, non-binary people talking to me about these shared experiences, and it really helped to actually develop and grow this project even beyond what I initially made and anticipated. So um, self-portraiture is a way, and uh, for me, it's a way for me to use my own body as like a, a sort of archetypal character that other people can then look into. And um, so it's not really about me per se, but it's about this sort of shared experience. I want to be able to share them with other people. Um, I'm bad at this clicker. There we go, that's the self-portrait. Um, so this piece is about, just to give you an idea of scale, I'd never paint smaller than life size. Um, so all of those heads were actually much larger than life. Those uh, other portraits were 36 inches by 48 inches. This is seven feet tall by six feet wide, just to give you an idea of scale. A lot of the embellishments and materials on the surface are actually dimensional, so um, those are Turkey feathers all on the sort of cape that I'm wearing there. Um, the teardrops are made of, uh, they're like rhinestoned dimensional teardrops that are on there. There's a lot of sequins and uh, costume jewelry and drag materials. I think a lot about um, my affinity for uh, drag queens, I feel like comes out of my affinity for black church ladies and this sort of like high level of glamour and peacocking and in that type of space to sort of really um, present your best self, but with all these kind of synthetic materials. And, um, you know, I grew up with women surrounding me, and I went to a Baptist church, and so I'm used to seeing this kind of really, really high glamour just going every week, you know, new hats, new all jewelry and things like that. And so um, all of that comes back into the paintings and thinking about queering a space, but also using something that feels oddly familiar and comfortable for me. Um, yeah. I have a question from a different culture. Um, the need to beautify yourself, to use all this, as you said, the fake, opulent jewelry or items of, of, of 
glossiness and, and, and peacocking. I love that term. Um, where would that come from? How do you understand that need to, to show off and um, perform in a way? Um, you know, I think everybody does it to an extent, um, or many people do. Um, and I think, I think it really, thinking about drag, for example, um, you know, that came out of a kind of desperate need for expressing oneself in a multitude of ways and different facets of yourself and really embracing them and pushing them to the forefront. Um, I think black women that want to go to church and look their absolute best on a Sunday, that's really significant for them. Those are the people that they're presenting them, their best selves to or a facet of themselves to. So I, I do think that that's um, a commonality in a lot of ways. I think about a lot of um, you know, heteronormative men that love to wear big chains and jewelry mm -hmm. and it's also just as you know, glamorous yeah, and exactly. glitzy and show-offy exactly. as anything else. So um, whether or not they're real, it does not really matter. matter. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, I think a lot about, um, you know, like T-Pain, I mean, had real chains for a long time and then when he went bankrupt, he bought fake ones so he could still present himself as wealthy even though he was no longer. And so I think in hip-hop culture, it's really embedded into that. I think a lot of um, a lot of people do it, but I think it just manifests in different ways, but it's always and kind of also bright Also, listening flashy. to me, it makes me think of, you know, going back really, really early, the rituals, when mm -hmm. you use your own body for beautification, but also for, some, you know, symbolic expressions, whatever those are, in any culture, any original culture, any other culture, it's just this human need to transform, I guess, to some extent, yeah. in order to get to a different self. Interesting how different cultures yeah. do it differently. And I and I also think that the um, you know the materiality of the paintings it's it's very evident. A lot of it is really familiar, and I think a lot about um, the resourcefulness of people to sort of find ways to present themselves as a, a better version of yourself. And you're sort of constructing this fantasy on top of yourself, um, looking outwards. And yeah. and I think that that's something that everybody's doing every single day when they're just even getting ready to leave the house. But when I look extent. at your work, I, I, you know, I see the sad faces. They're very daring, uh, the faces, and kind of the, the, the juxtaposition of this wardrobe that is so flashy. And yet the, the, the faces that are only you know, reduced to eyes and without, you know, with strong expressions are very kind of stylized, almost remind me of the classical Greek statues. Uh, oh yeah, um, no, in their kind of subtlety and and then the boldness, and it's a, such a contrast to the wardrobe and again the yeah. opulent, goldy, uh, flashy. I think appearance. the scale is really important to me, and that's why I mentioned that. Is also um, when I I studied or I really didn't study abroad. I did a um, a residency through a fellowship in Italy, and um, you know the positioning of your body in relationship to. Uh, any Bernini sculpture pretty much is always you're like kind of positioned much lower and you, you observe yeah. their bodies looking upwards and they're these uh, giant uh, beautiful bodies that are um, you know contorting in all different ways and there's a high element of drama to them and I loved that um, I love that kind of dynamic and so I really want to make sure that the figures feel larger than life I mean they literally are but you know really feel bigger than they are um, more vibrant and luminous, and so they do have this kind of, um, all of them you'll see have this gradient on their bodies, and a lot of that is uh, thinking of, like here, this sort of, um, this like headspace where you're uh, 
as it's getting, sometimes I use it as like a temperature region where I want to point to certain things. Um, sometimes it's to say that something is in pain or um, this person's uh, really kind of zoned out in their own headspace, and so it elevates lighter and lighter and as you get up, as you go upwards through their body. So there's a lot of um, things that I'm doing with playing with flatness and flattened areas and color and paying attention to those things across their bodies as well. Yeah, so these, all of these, many of these works were actually featured in uh, my first solo show uh, with a museum um, at the Warhol. And so these were, these ones in particular where people are cutting their own hair, uh, for me were um, indicative of a sort of like, a thing that I notice a lot of people who identify similarly to me go through, which is having to cut your own hair in between haircuts so as to not have to often traffic through those spaces. Um, and so sort of taking agency on your own grooming routines and so many people I know are just like, you know, really capable of cutting their own hair and tending to their own, um, you know, hairlines and things like that to maintain in between actual haircuts. And so you might see also some specific products that people are using in their hair. Um, I actually would go to people's places and photograph them myself, but the uh, portraits of people in barbershops, I never really could get myself to go in there to talk, you know, to really unpack this with strangers. And so I ended up, um, all of those are kind of like hybridized invented people through just like sourcing imagery online um, and then trying to construct my own fantasy of what a barbershop could be, a place in which you could actually go and decompress. You could hypothetically cry if you needed to, whether or not those were tears of joy or pain. Um, and so a lot of that comes out of, out of that world too. Um, and so for those of you who haven't seen it, even though you, you saw the video, um, there's some images towards the end of this of the installation. Um, we got, what was really great about working with Cultural DC is that you guys connected me with, um, with Kelly Gorsuch who runs the Barber of Hell's Bottom shops here in DC as well as in Richmond, um, who connected me with the uh, furniture maker uh, in who's, uh, Caleb Woodard who's based in Nashville. And, being able to really fully realize a functioning space and have the correct flow, the right amount of furniture, um, an aesthetic that made sense both with my work as well as uh, making sure that it wasn't just going to get totally wrecked in the process of being used so much. And I was really excited to come back today and see that everything is intact. <laughs> um, so I was very, very nervous about all of that when I left, but um, you know, everything's really it's held up. Me. Yeah. I mean, with kids trafficking through that space, I knew that um, making work like this and putting it in a space like the Ark would have a lot of young people coming in and interacting with the work. And wow, I mean, it was like as soon as it opened, a kid was like slapping his hands across the painting. But I mean, luckily we have um, you know these Plexi. plastic there was a covers. Yeah, so <laughs> everything is uh, very. Very protected, but um, but you know when making this, I thought a lot about who would be trafficking through here and um, and the potential to have it be something that was so fantastical and uh, you know everything is really heavily embellished and encrusted with rhinestones and silk flowers and um, and it's almost like walking into one of the paintings and then when the barbers are there actually cutting hair, they've they're the ones who brought this project to life fully. Um, they're the ones that are actually there on the ground talking with people, educating that community about um, you know, LGBTQIA uh, rights, um, identity politics. Um, you know, we have, what was really important to me, and I got to talk with Kelly about this, is the type of barbers 
that we would have present there, um, you know, who, what's the ideal person for this? And you know, for me, it was I wanted it to be somebody who looked like the community, but also was an ally of the LGBTQ community or part of that community in some capacity, and could educate people if they had questions. Um, and luckily enough, we've had so many amazing people come through and cut hair. Um, we've had women from um, Lady, Clippers. Lady Clippers come in, which I just found out, which is like incredible to have female barbers because I've never gone to a barber shop and had a female barber, which I, and I've always been intrigued about these um, new initiatives here. I know that's, an, is that a newer shop? Yeah, yeah. pretty new. Yeah, and so, um, you know, that was one thing. We also had Brixton, who's um, a trans-identifying male, and he um, is just so patient with everybody. And there's a really wonderful piece written in the Washington Post, um, which is about the project, but it's also heavily about a profiling of Brixton and his experiences in the shop, which is um, really incredible to hear some of the types of conversations he's had with people in talking about trans identity as someone who, um, you know, he's explaining it sometimes to kids who can't tell whether or not he's male or female and, you know, giving them answers about that and talking with parents that are coming through with kids and, um, and explaining that to them and hopefully leaving with some changed minds or, um, or at least somebody who had a civil interaction and got a great haircut and that's great too. And so I think that that's um, what's been really amazing is having those people in there because they've really brought the project fully to life and done all the real, real hard work that I know that me, myself, um, you know, as an art, artist, I think a lot of times we're expected to be activists um, in this uh, sort of typical way of which we think of an activist as like, you know, out on the street with the signs and chained to the building. But, um, you know, me, I, you know, I, I, I've come to terms with the fact that somehow through making art, I can find ways to be the type of activist that fits me best. And I think that, um, you know, making this work and putting them in white box galleries is only accessing a small limited audience of people who actually are privileged to traffic through those spaces and feel welcome there. Um, and so I really wanted to do something like this that actually engages with the community that maybe normally wouldn't go and see work in a museum or go and see work at a gallery. Um, and I wanted them to want to come in here and not have it feel as though it's this sort of uh, experiment on them or something like that. So I really, really made sure that those people that are gonna be in there talking with these people um, and cutting their hair, there had to be uh, some kind of level of trust that was built. And I think the easiest way to start that conversation is to have them at least identify with you on some level. So that was really important to me. So do you have anything to add from your experience as a co-organizer? Yeah, I mean, I think that accessibility is always something at the forefront of our thinking when we're putting these projects together, because I think that we want everybody to feel like this is a place for them, you know? And we want the community to take ownership of this space as it lives there. And, you know, our hope with this project was that, you know, we, we recognize the cultural, historical significance the barbershop plays in African-American communities and communities in general. And our hope was that, you know, we would, perhaps we could kind of create our own space, our own community gathering space. And I think that was what was so fantastic to see happen here was that over time we had regulars and we had people that just came and like hung out in the shop to talk to Brixton and tell stories. And, and I think even, you know, the accessibility, even for kids, you know, I think that's important for kids that, to be able to respond even on a really basic level, to the colors and the textures and the shapes and the paintings, I think is really exciting. And 
and to be able to give that to a community so that they know that this is for everybody and it's not just for the elite, it's not for somebody that has a fancy art degree. Um, and so these prints in here are uh, modeled after um, you know, style guides that you might stumble upon on posters in barber shops and, um, or in their kind of like flip book catalogs. And so I really wanted to have small things like this as an exciting thing for people to see and, um, and identify. You know, it's really funny when people walk through and they see these things. I've had people be really excited and be like, oh, I, I love these things. You know, I used to take my hair cut off of them. And, and so there are these kind of like insider things that pop up here and there. The faux wood paneling is something that's really familiar to me growing up um, in looking at uh, that horrible architectural decision and interior design <laughs> that happened in the like 80s and 90s. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and I think that that was something that I wanted it to feel somewhat like home in a way. Um, that's uh, referencing my own basement when I grew up where I would get my hair cut by my uncle, actually. Um, I think what's great about these like references to these like yeah. cut sheets was that like kids would come in and actually like pick them yeah. and they'd be like I want that one and you could tell Brixton's face was like oh oh yeah and of, Ooh, and of hey. course I picked really complex like, right and so I think Brixton like did pretty good at like yeah. taking a stab at it but it was really yeah. interesting to like especially with the kids to see how the kids would respond and how the kids would pick not only these designs but I think that's where we knew that we were starting to have an impact when we had kids coming in like asking to have their their name like names tattooed or names like shaved into their heads mm -hmm. of like their friends that had died or like had been killed or and I think you know there's a there's a whole level of that that we just couldn't have expected and um, it's really powerful and it's I think it it um, it was really exciting to see that 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 kind of interaction with the community and that those guards being down and kids feeling mm -hmm. like they can um, have those conversations with the barber. Mm -hmm. What's also been interesting was hearing you tell, tell me about um, some of the, you know, the people in that community, that was where they would get their hair cut every week. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it became this thing that the community relied on, um, not only embraced, but relied on yeah. for something that maybe they normally wouldn't be able to have done, right. um, which was really incredible. And I feel so sad for it to leave because I wish I could just leave it with them. And, <laughs> but yeah. don't you think that the moment that it was free, right, the mm -hmm. haircuts were free, free, so there was another incentive and the kind of connection to, to regular people to say, oh, right. I can have a haircut for free and I can see it in a cool place. It's very different than anything else. And I think that raises a lot of questions. But my question to you, I'd love to hear a little more about um, the hair culture in mm. within the African-American population because it's it's a different issue and when I look at some of those designs I was looking at you sorry I was like well how do you do this it's a silly question but and then everything tomorrow will be different and it's just that there, there's so many issues I think and interesting issues formal and obviously identity that are fascinating um, that are not necessarily in in the culture of the whites because our hair is very different um, could you Speak about that a little more. I can speak a little bit to that. Um, I, I mean, you know, with black hair, I think there's such a long. I mean, there's a very long, complex history that's uh, full of issues with hair. I mean, thinking about uh, black American hair specifically. I mean, only probably in recent years have um, a lot of black women been wearing their hair natural, um, and so I think that uh, you know some hairstyles historically have been reactionary to uh, 
um, you know, there, it used to be really in to get perms and things like that, mm -hmm. and that totally damages your hair, breaks it off at the ends, dries it out. Then wigs become, you know, this new thing. So I think, but you know, perms even came out of a desire for assimilation, um, looking more uh, appropriate at mm -hmm. work, right? Um, my mom, when she was in the military, had her hair locked, and they shaved it all off as soon as she joined the military. Um, you know, that hairstyle mm -hmm. wasn't permitted then, or you know, even up till now. I mean, it, there was that kid who had to shape his hair like right there at a wrestling match mm -hmm. or something. You know, so there's always this. Um, I mean, even this week, yeah. the kid yeah. that had to have oh. his his shape, like his fades filled, filled in. in with a sharpie. Yeah, so I think there's always been this um, relationship of black hair as it's this thing that's um, that people are fast, both fascinated by, but also um, they hate it. It's like this weird. It's like they hate that there's something so incredible about it. I think <laughs> no, truly, because I think it does. So, it's so versatile, and I think. Um, it's something in which uh, a lot of people want to touch, but that's, you know, I don't even touch my hair that much throughout the day because if I do, it'll just like get really crazy. So, you know, I think that there's a, a desire to understand it, um, to feel it, and because it's so of difference to um, so many other cultures' yeah, hair, exactly. it's just like this fascinating thing. People want to know if it's quote unquote real or not, or if it's yours or whatever. And, and it's, um, and I think that there's, in, in barbershops and in salons and in black spaces, um, you know, everybody understands all of these things uh, and like can sort of look at someone's hair and understand it as uh, it's, a, again, it's similarly, even thinking about the way um, in which I describe drag, it's like, you know, it's this part of a person that they, if they want to change it, they can change it whenever mm -hmm. they want and there's no qualms with it. They want to make a huge radical shift, but I think in a lot of cultures, people are, they cut their hair, dye it a crazy color, it's the same thing. The difference is, is that there's a, there's a lot of like politics around black hair. And like that's, that's, that's the, what I was yeah. aiming to, because I, that's mm -hmm. exactly the word I was trying yeah. to say. The, the, the style is, has this political connotation. It's obviously has to do with identity politics. It's there. Yeah. And uh, much more, I think, than in other cultures. So that's very important. So I was going to go deeper into that because mm -hmm. it's almost like declaring yourself. Where do you belong? Where do you set yourself or insert yourself in a society by how your hair is? And mm -hmm. that's, it's just fascinating, I think. Anyway. Um, yeah, and the other thing I will say is that I think that a lot of um, a lot of shops and or like a lot of pop culture comes from a lot of the things that they're doing and wearing, and um, even lyrics of certain songs and things like that reference a lot that comes out of black or started or spawned in black culture and that has disseminated widely. Um, you know, wearing wigs. Um, in, in this kind of casual way and changing your hair all the time has been embraced by so many, you know, um, you know celebrities and stars. On, uh, I think about people that are darkening their skin and things like that, or um, I think a lot about, for example, Kim Kardashian on the cover of, I forget what magazine, and she darkened her skin to look more similar to her daughters in the photos. Um, I think about Ariana Grande making a, a song that rips lyrics from another um, up-and-coming black artist specifically talking about her hair and how she bought it and how it's hers and um, and it's an anthem the original song was this anthem about celebrating black hair and loving your hair um, and then sort of appropriated by a white artist who gets confused for Latinx because she's too tan and um, and um, you know and is wearing weave all the time you know that was not a normal I I don't think I've ever seen 
a white girl wear weave until like 2010 or something or 15. So it was just really amazing, I mean, in that way, and really talk about it like weave. Like, and it was just really interesting to see this development of, um, you know, nowadays people are, I, I, have, I have to tell people often, I'm like, oh my God, like everybody on TV is on the news, they're all wearing weave. You know, and, and people are like, oh no, but she's white, that has to be her hair. I'm like, no, I promise you, it's also weave. And it's not that crazy. I think it's just um, when we see it on black people, because it can, I think a lot of times it's so experimental or so different, um, and it changes more often, and they're so much more used to it, and they take care of it better, and their hair is of difference to it. I think it's just more, um, it's more obvious or more uh, curious for people. Um, I know a lot of times, even when black women are wearing their natural hair, they get questioned, is that yours? Or they, people assume it's weave. So there's all this like mystery and intrigue around it when really everybody's wearing weave. It's like not, <laughs> yeah, it's fine. <laughs> it's, yeah. So it's just like kind of a funny thing where in recent years we're really talking a lot about that. And I think a lot of black people are really, um, there's a lot of uh, initiatives to make black women love their hair and take care of it and allow it to grow in a really healthy way. There's a ton of products and people talking about, um, you know, I even think about the sort of structure in hotels and how I could never use, a ho I can't use like a hotel conditioner or shampoo ever. I would never use that. And so, you know, it would immediately dry out my hair. And so it's this thing where there's small things like that that I think are um, little baby steps that places could do to really embrace entire groups of people um, by having other products available or, um, or just maybe not having them present there. You know, I just think that there's other little things that you can do in businesses to make your space much more inclusive um, and welcoming. And I think about that in the barbershop as well. Maybe don't play that Eddie Murphy um, stand-up comedy routine from like 1987 or whatever. Um, you know, he has an entire section that has a very derogatory connotation and it's titled that. If you look and you can find it on Apple Music, it's the F word. <laughs> and, and I think, um, you know, it's things like that. Uh, if it's just playing in the background, that's nothing for most people just casually sitting around, but that's a lot for me, sitting in that space and hearing somebody talk that way. Um, or, you know, maybe not making certain types of comments about women's bodies in spaces like that and uh, making it more welcoming for women to come in. And so I think it's, it's little things that can make a huge amount of difference, um, and it's very easy to stop some of those things. And so I think that uh, it's like almost like a systematic issue that's much bigger than just you know, just barbershops, but um, for me, I, I thought that this was a really great opportunity to focus, focus in on a very small thing and maybe in some way I can make a big change in a small community. And obviously this is not just about the barbershop, uh, and there's so much more in, in, in the project, but I think also one of the most interesting things, at least from my end, is the, the relationship between the queerness and masculinity and the barbershop and how the two are diverging or um, what are the issues within that culture, not just the regular barbershop or barbershop for regular um, people or people of um, bisexual, but mm -hmm. how does that work, you know, from your end? Because you had a, as you said earlier, yeah. as a child, you didn't like it. Yeah. Is it because of your own sexuality? Or is it just you didn't like anybody touching your uh, hair? And, and then later on, it becomes even more uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, I'm, I would never blame anything that somebody else is doing on my identity, but I would say that um, 
the fact that I was raised in a certain type of environment, um, you know, it, it presented even at a young age before I even knew a term for what I would call what I was in terms of my sexual identity. Um, I think that there, uh, I was noticing things like, I don't think that, um, I don't like the way that that man talked to my mom. You know, or I don't, I don't like the way that these men are telling their kids not to cry or whine because, you know, something hurts or they're uncomfortable or, you know, and um, because that's too effeminate, right? So it's little things. It's, um, you know, it's about setting up guidelines and rules um, that are inherently at odds with maybe something that's natural within yourself that made me not feel like that was a space for me. And I think that that's, um, I mean, that can work for anybody. I mean, that I, I wouldn't feel comfortable going into a space and seeing them talk to a, a woman in a certain way, I would leave. And so, you know, it's not just about my own identity or anything like that. It's, um, it's them and their issues, and it's something that I take issue with is how um, in those spaces that becomes normal, normalized, and then that then is transferred to children knowing that, or believing that, you know, oh, I'm not supposed to act this way or express myself or this or that. Um, so I think that it starts at a really young age, and I think that's what's so great in here is, is that um, where this is, it's so heavily trafficked by children, and um, none of them think any of this is that weird. And, and that's what's amazing is seeing their parents be like, oh, uh, like, you know, they're the ones who have to sort of get out of their own way. Whereas the kids um, are being, you know, sort of driven into thinking certain things because of them. And, and so, they're more openly yeah. curious. And, yeah. you know, prejudice did not kick in yeah. yet, or maybe not to the extent that we have it later on. Yeah. Like these two, they just wanted to get the hula hoops and more of these sodas that weren't soda, but they were like water. <laughs> and they didn't like any of the flavors. There's a, yeah. And there's a beautiful innocence that children bring yeah. that, that they ask questions that we may not ask because we don't feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And they just go ahead and ask. Yeah. And yeah. No filter. Yeah. No, and then that's what we need to learn from them. I notice a lot of references to nature and floral arrangements. Could you speak about that a little bit? Do they have symbolism? Um, so the nature elements, I would say, I think of them less of, of nature because they, they are silk flowers. Um, everything in here is like completely synthetic. That's not even actual tile. Um, it's like a digital print that's a been, turned, yeah, like a big sticker on the floor. The wallpaper isn't real wood paneling. So everything about it is synthetic. And um, it's to really just harken back to that um, and reinforce that notion of this uh, synthetic constructed glamour fantasy. So um, the silk flowers are um, to sort of nod towards the idea of like a fantasy in, in nature when you think of sort of like a maybe fairy tale type fantasy. But it's not. It, there are silk flowers. and. Um, and rhinestones are not diamonds, you know, things like that. So it's just uh, everything is all basically plastic. Yeah. But the flowers have shown up mm -hmm. in other parts of your work. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, do you want to? Yeah. Because um, they have a different. They do. And so I think a lot about also a place like um, Anacostia. And I'm sure many of you have seen things like this. But um, thinking about uh, my sculptural practice um, heavily is influenced by uh, DIY craft traditions in, um, you know, like the spontaneous memorial in certain neighborhoods. And so that's also kind of harkening back to that and thinking about the type of people that are trafficking through here and the things that they're dealing with 
on a day-to-day -day basis, but also how in a lot of other communities um, we use celebratory uh, modes of working through something quite dark. Um, you know, a lot of dance crazes come out of really dark places, a lot of uh, music that's really, you know, exciting and upbeat comes out of that. And so it's also kind of a nod towards that. There's a lot of folk element in your work. And a lot of what? Folk element, right? Yeah. Is that coming from your upbringing or, um, a or little bit. surroundings I mean, or interest in? I think it's just more of an interest in. I, I've, um, I grew up reading a lot. I, um, my grandmother would read to me uh, you know, fairy tales and folklore from a variety of cultures. And so I was always really fascinated by that and mythologies and things like that. Something that's, um, I even think the word mythology is super complicated. and and that, that was like a very real thing for, for those people. Um, and, and so I think a lot about that play between what's real and what's fake, um, truth, you know, truth and fiction. And um, yeah, and those things being very real for one person is a complete fantasy for another person. And so this also was thinking about um, a desire for a space in which I didn't think really existed or could exist in a place like that. That, that's the beauty of it, this kind of fantastic quality to it. You, you know it's not real, but it actually functions like real because you can get a fair haircut. Yeah. And there is a barber and there are chairs. They look different than any other barber shop, but it's, yeah. it's functionally imaginary. So what are your takeaways to, to both of you, the question? And wh what is that uh, that you could have predicted? What were the surprises? Um, I, I guess for, for me, the surprises were that it was so embraced by this community. I had no clue how it was going to to go. I mean, I, I knew it was offering a service, so I had a feeling that people would want the free haircuts, but I didn't know how successful those interactions would be between the barber and the people that were actually trafficking through. Um, when it's an art gallery is one thing. I think it's just kind of funny to hear that people just expect it to be a barbershop at all times. And so um, how people engage with it varies depending on their, uh, I guess their own needs in that moment. And so um, I'm just really proud of what it's become and how um, working with so many different people coming together can do something so significant and make such a change, even if only for a few months for a community. But that was, um, just really, I, I think that was the most uh, significant thing for me is I didn't, I had no idea if people were really going to embrace this because or not, and if people would feel comfortable working in it. Yeah. Essentially, this was the first time you were working with community. Yeah. Is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, all of my, I mean, being a painter being, is a very, like when we were talking about this earlier, it's a very passive practice where you're, um, you're isolated often, you're alone, you're in your studio, and then you send it, you sort of like are incubating, and then you just send it out into the world and let it have its life. Um, and so this is quite different and where people are actually really in there all the time and, um, and engaging with it in a very different context, I think, than a white box art gallery space. Yeah. Well, you came to them yeah. as opposed to them coming to you. And that's very important. Yeah. You're on their territory. Yeah. So, and they have time to explore. I think that's one of the keys that we have as museums issue with how do we, how do we cross that border? And Christy, what would you say from your? I mean, I, I think for us is I, you know, I we were, 
perhaps shocked isn't the right word, but I think that we've been very pleasantly surprised at the way that the community has embraced this space. I mean, I think this is the ultimate goal. This is like why we built the mobile art gallery, so that we can not only present art, but present things that challenge the community. And, and perhaps if they change one person's thinking about something, then we know we've succeeded. And I think being on this journey and being on this journey, like having Brixton being the barber in the shop, the primary barber throughout the project, added a layer to, the, to this project that I don't think any of us could have expected in terms of the stories and, and the engagement he had on a day-to-day -day basis um, based on his, his own journey and in his transition. Um, and so I think that has just, um, it's been great. And I think we couldn't have, you know, we couldn't have expected that. Well, thank you. Um, how about some questions from public? I'm going to pass the microphone to you, and there's some other behind you. Okay. Hi, I'm just um, curious if there's um, like a tie to like cinema or like filmmaking practices within any canon within like the work that you've been making just in general. Um, you know, I not directly at least, but um, usually whenever I've given artist talks just about my work in general, I reference a lot of um, music videos. So I look at a lot of cinematography um, more than I would say uh, like cinema in general. But um, yeah, I mean, there's certain music videos that I think about a lot in terms of composition and color and the way in which a narrative is structured and told in short form. Um, so there's, a, there's actually a Flying Lotus video that I really love. Um, I cannot think of the name of the song off the top of my head, but it's a really incredible video where the majority of it is in reverse, and it tells a story about a, um, a black neighborhood and a shooting that happens there. But it's through dance and, um, and movement. It's really amazing and creative. But I also um, will show like a Nicki Minaj music video and be just as like fascinated by some of the things that are happening there and how that affects culture in a lot of ways. You talked about accessibility, so I was wondering for both your exhibit and for the mobile art gallery in general, if they are wheelchair accessible, if they are ADA compliant. Yeah, I think that for us, when we built the mobile art gallery, that was something that we have we tasked um, the architects with, and I think we adapt every every location is different, and so you'll see there's no pictures of the outside, but. Every time we go to a location, um, accessibility, ADA accessibility is really important to us. And so we, we, for those of you who see it, you'll see that there's a platform out front, and then typically there is a ramp. And yeah. so that ramp configuration changes depending on the location, but it's always been um, accessible. And I think that's really important for us. Um, I mean, yeah, that's like a structure. I didn't know if you had any Oh, no, um, uh, uh, for you, you know, I, I just wondered, you mm -hmm. know, like we're, were the uh, sinks and equipment adaptable so that if someone could not so enter there, there are no sinks chair. in here there's no water access mm. um, and so the barbers are kind of doing this all just right on site with their dry materials and everything so mm. th there's some limitations there but that's a limitation for everybody coming in but in terms of um, wheelchair accessibility they can get in there um, and the people that work there know that if there's somebody that does come through like that to make sure that there's a clear path, because it's quite a narrow space. It's a that, shipping that's container. That's something I, I visited, yeah. and that's what I thought, was if the barbers yeah. are there, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard even if the barbers are there for a non, you know, mm -hmm. if somebody else, every, you know, to be able to get in and see yeah. the art. And so I think that that's always going to be a challenge that we have within that space. Anytime you add mm -hmm. a sculptural component or a three-dimensional component to the space, it becomes a challenge. But it's something that mm -hmm. we're always um, aware of and yeah. trying to make. And, and what you would see is in there is oh, the yeah. chairs, unlike some barbers that are like planted, and like attached to the floor, those chairs actually can move, and so they could slide out of the way. Yeah, so everything is movable to make way for anybody who comes through if they need that space. Um, and also, all of the the way in which all the work on the walls is installed is evenly spaced, so that way, you know, there's three prints, and they're essentially the same. They're like, you know, and, but the two are at the very front, and one is in the, you know, a little further back, and one of the paintings is closer to the front before you even get to the really cluttered area. So it's kind of an even distribution of everything so you get to see work at any point you're in there. Will this inspire other shops to maybe take a look at what they're doing and how, I mean, do you have any feedback from barbers, from conventional barber um, shops? And I've, I've only had conversations with the barbers that, a couple of the barbers that we've had in here um, and they don't own their own shops. Um, but I do have to say that to do something like this is quite, uh, it's quite an operation. <laughs> so I don't know, I mean, if somebody wants to do that, like more power to them, I would love for that to become a trend um, if they wanna really go for it. But it is, I mean, there were so many people, not just me, I mean, it was me, there was Caleb making the furniture, there's Kelly making sure that everything is arranged correctly in the space and that we have everything we need for barbers because he runs shops at an administrative level. There's um, you guys doing all the programming surrounding it. So there, there's, it's a huge, huge operation. So, I mean, if somebody else wants to take off and like go ahead and do this somewhere, I more power to them. I think um, it's a good model, but it's very, it's quite complicated to make it happen and to keep it up for as long as we yeah. have is still hard too. I also think there's another level that we haven't talked a lot about, and, and, but there have been instances, there have been complicated situations that have come up, you know, there have been complicated conversations that have happened with community members mm -hmm. that don't agree or don't aren't on the same level. I, I can't because I wasn't there to understand, mm -hmm. like I, I wouldn't feel comfortable, but I know that there were times where both our barber and our staff have said, I felt really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think that that's just because there are biases. I also do want to say that there are, um, and we talked about Lady Clipper, is mm -hmm. that what it's called? Um, they, that's a, an example of a model of maybe not with all the art, but like, you know, just with having a certain mission statement um, and making it very clear that this is a, a space that's inclusive and they're there for everybody and certain language is not welcome in here and et cetera. So I do think that there are ways in which you can implement um, like a code of conduct or something for your space that will effectively do everything that I'm talking about or at least start that type of, uh, start to cultivate a type of um, welcoming inclusive space. This podcast is powered by Candor, a digital production lab based in Northeast DC. We help you build powerful marketing content, connect with your audience and grow your business. Want to become a content expert? Swing by our studio on the Arts Walk in Brooklyn. Or check us out online at candorlabs.com. That's candor with two A's.